Hi, it's Joe Manchewski, the host of Better Buildings for Humans. Our mission is to expand the conversation about how the buildings that we live, work, and play in impact our well-being. I'll be having conversations with leading researchers in building science, with architects, and with a variety of wellness practitioners to tie it all together. I hope you'll be part of the conversation. Recently, I got the pleasure to speak with Dr. Michael Kent. Michael's a researcher in Singapore, and he's associated with the University of California at Berkeley. He's a world-leading expert on daylight and views and their impact on humans. He's done some really interesting research on the negative impacts of glare from both artificial light and from daylight. It's an amazing topic, and I have to admit, I didn't fully realize how deep that rabbit hole goes. Michael's well-spoken. He's very passionate about his work. Now listen to this conversation if you want to gain a better appreciation of the importance of viewing daylight and the ways in which glare impacts our ability to perform complex tasks. Uh, so predominantly, a lot of my work is motivated, I guess, by this famous quote, which often gets thrown around in the lighting research community, which often says that, you know, there's, there's more to light than just vision. And I've often felt from, you know, that perspective it's important to understand how light influences other things, such as, you know, human health, comfort, and also behavior. And also, you know, if you expand that even more broadly to also to like energy and sustainability. And I think what this creates is, is like a very interesting dialogue and a lot of interesting challenges, which I often try to tackle with my own research. And often I've had the pleasure of like exploring these types of things for research in things such as like export air, yeah, like, you know, exploratory laboratory experiments in field studies as well as like computer simulation mm -hmm. and also as well like more recently like newer and existing kind of methodologies such as the virtual reality so in, in a broad term would you repeat that michael i'm sorry yeah so um so studies that are like in laboratory experiments uh field studies and natural office buildings computer simulations yeah. and also as well like these new kind of kind of emerging methodologies which we're, we're now using in the lighting community, such as like virtual reality. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. You know, Michael, I, I didn't uh, I didn't ask you this at the beginning, so I'm going to ask again. Could you tell us where, where you work, um, where you do your research and what organizations you're associated with? Sure, no worries. So at the, at the moment, where I am right now is in Singapore. So if you're not very familiar with Singapore, it's uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, it's about 1.6 degrees north of the equator, so right on, you know, near the tropics. So it's characteristically is very hot, very humid all year round, even at nighttime. So uh, kind of lovely weather to go out at nighttime when the sun's out. Wear some sun sunscreen. Do <laughs> on the safe side. Um, but I work here as a researcher, so for an institution, uh, well, a technical non-profit research center called the Berkeley Education uh, Alliance for Research in Singapore, uh, so it forms the acronym BEARS. And this is um, essentially a collaborative center which forms a collaboration between three main institutions. So the University of Singapore, NUS in Singapore, uh, NTU, Nanyang Technological University, which is also in Singapore, and the third is the University of California, Berkeley. And you know, together, you know, uh, we have professors, researchers, you know, in this research center tackling all sorts of research that pertains to the built environment, such as, for example, thermal comfort, indoor air quality, acoustics, and obviously on my side of things where I fit into the equation is indoor lighting. Okay. 
Yeah, terrific. Um, so, as you know, our world is is uh, is a little more oriented towards natural light versus artificial light. How how much would you say uh, uh, is there overlap uh, with natural light and artificial light? I think there's. I mean, fundamentally, if you look at the pure physics, I remember. Peter Boyce saying, who was like the former technical editor of lighting research and technology and a, a kind of one of the big pillars of lighting, often kind of arguing that, you know, fundamentally speaking, they're both the same thing. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's electromagnetic radiation within a visible spectrum. But there's, you know, there are nuanced differences between the two, such as, for example, like the most obvious being that daylight is dynamic, it varies, you know, in its intensity, direction, color timing throughout the day and you know that really is what kind of separates the two apart from each other um but fundamentally speaking they're the same thing we're sort of trying to design them into the buildings in the same way to make sure there's enough of it so people can see they're comfortable they can do their tasks um but you know daylight has that dynamic component to it and i always feel like that dynamic component is obviously what makes people prefer it over electric lighting so there, there are differences there are some similarities Depends on, you know, we can spend a whole different conversation on this, you know, what, sure. what those are, but I think that's probably the easiest way to kind of summarize, you know, how the two kind of, you know, if, you, if we contrast them together, I think that's how you, I would summarize it. Okay. How important do you think daylight is to, uh, to building occupants? Uh, I think it's incredibly important. Um, so, for example, we know that people spend, you know, about 90% maybe even more of their time inside buildings. Yeah, but as, as human beings, you know, as we are, we're not designed to be encased in buildings. So, you know, if we spend a lot of time inside buildings, particularly those that don't have good daylight access, or, you know, uh, this can actually have a lot of negative consequences on our health and well-being. So having, having good daylighting, having good access into buildings is incredibly important. Fantastic. So... What what would you say are the biggest challenges in bringing natural light into a building? The biggest challenges. Uh, so the biggest challenges that I've kind of learned or kind of experienced so far have probably been to kind of bring natural light into a building while maintaining a good balance between, you know, potentially conflicting design requirements. So I kind of feel like we're at a point now where design, research, and practice are sort of like at a point where we know how to bring natural light into the building, mm -hmm. both in terms of like its quantity, timing, and other seminal design criteria. I kind of feel like this is sort of reflected in our building standards and guidelines. However, actually bringing that natural light into a building without sort of compromising other building design requirements is not as straightforward. And I think that kind of conveys with it other challenges. So, for example, like if I take Singapore, which is a hot and humid climate, you know, bringing natural light into the building is not so simple when you can easily overheat that building, you know, causing other problems such as like thermal discomfort and high energy uh, cooling demands. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, obviously, we can bring the light into the building uh, in you know colder climates, such as, for example, the UK where I'm from, or potentially like you know, some places in Canada. And uh, you know this is very beneficial for solar you know, solar heat gains, reducing cooling uh, heating loads. But you know at the same time we've got to avoid things such as like glare from a low hanging sun in the winter months. So I think you know these types of problems. I think if you bring them back together, you know these very different examples. You know I think what connects them all together is this idea of having a good balance between you know, multiple design criteria, and obviously that's where 
Thalic also fits into the equation. Cool. Let's talk about some definitions, some things that not everybody might understand. Um, the difference between disability glare and discomfort glare, which is to, I didn't, I've never heard the term disability glare until very recently, until I read one of your papers. Uh, and and uh, I, it, I think it, it's important for people to understand that, that there are differences. And maybe you could uh, describe those for me. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the difference between disability and discomfort glare is that uh, disability glare will reduce our ability to see and discern visual objects. Hence, it's the glare that you know, disables vision, while discomfort glare does not. Um, so I've done experiments showing that even at high levels of discomfort glare caused by a light source, there's, you know, there's very minimal reductions in, you know, in, in our ability to see and recall letters and numbers. I think it's about, you know, about 2%, for example. And yeah. You know, I, uh, that's that's really kind of what the main difference between the two are. Um, if we go a little bit deeper on the research end, generally speaking, we sort of know the mechanisms of what causes disability glare. So we can kind of design it out of a building much easier because we can predict it and model it. We sort of know what lighting conditions cause it. While for discomfort glare, we don't. So there's a lot of sort of uncertainty behind all the prediction models that we have. And it's sort of a sensation that happens in the building, which we don't really fully understand just yet. But there's a lot of research, obviously, in that area, obviously trying to characterize it a bit better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll expand on that a little bit. Um, you, you made the comment that we know where uh, disability glare comes from. We know how to, to you know, predict it. Could you very, you very briefly summarize uh, the source of disability glare and how, uh, you know, maybe even quantify it for us? Yeah, um, so disability glare, I mean, will, it will tend to come from very bright light sources and right. it has a very direct light beam. So, you know, an obvious example could be from the sun where a light beam goes into the eye, it scatters within the eyeball itself and it causes like a feeling of reflections all over the retina. And obviously when this happens, you can no longer see what you're looking at. Uh, so those types of things, I mean, you know, we can sort of pinpoint scenarios that potentially could occur in a building, either by like, for example, just being on site, you know, looking at, you know, when direct sun might, might necessarily appear, or we could just do this in a computer simulation. In hindsight, we don't have, you know, the building, you know, constructed at that point. So there's kind of other ways of doing it. Um, and you know, as well, but there are equations available. So I think if you, if you look at some lighting standards, uh, I, I noticed that there's some available there. So like the equations are relatively straightforward to calculate that. It's just, you know, just basic photometry. We just measure these uh, quantities that we need, just calculate it. We were able to get a decent measure of disability glare. So we can measure it, you know, when we need to. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I assume you see both in, in buildings on a, on a regular basis. It's a common thing to see both. Yeah, yeah both um, both can uh, also as well, and an important note, both can actually happen at the same time. So it is possible to get disability glare that's also discomforting. So uh, they simultaneously appear. Obviously, it creates a whole new problem, which is very difficult to disentangle. But it is possible in case anybody's asking or curious about that too, that okay. the two can simultaneously happen. 
Yeah, no, that that's a that makes a lot of sense. Um, you've done some really interesting research uh, that links uh, building occupant performance with glare, uh, discomfort glare specifically. Um, research focused on glare from artificial light, but does that translate to to natural light as well to sunlight? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. Yeah, so so I would say that there's some parts that are transferable. So if you go from artificial lighting and then you transfer that knowledge into a daylight setting, then some of it is it, it is transferable because it's you know similar mechanisms, similar sensation occurs. It's uncomfortable. We, we sort of know that, but unfortunately, not everything is applicable. So. There's a really interesting study done by Hopkinson in the 1970s, which sort of showed like the original glare index that he created for artificial lights and which was applied to uh, daylit windows. And generally what he found was a very similar trend between you know, observed data that was plotted, uh, his glare index format for artificial lighting against how people felt. And what Hopkinson noticed, although that you have this similar trend, there's actually this consistent overestimation of what people actually felt compared to what his, uh, his glare index was telling him. So in other words, the glare index was showing that there was more glare than what people actually reported. And what he hypothesized is that there was something present, obviously, for these daylit, uh, daylit windows when the glare was present, which was not present when he was measuring it just for artificial windows. And what he deduced was that actually this was the window view. So you know, this is something that the window has, which obviously electric light doesn't. And this was actually later confirmed by you know, research in you know, 2005 and 2000, 2007 by researchers in the UK, showing that actually windows with a better view increased people's tolerance to glare from a window. Um, so you know, having that in mind, you can actually see how you know, the, the two are actually kind of independent from each other so not every that in that sense not everything is applicable anymore right that is really interesting yeah we we, we speak often uh at, at advanced collisions about the importance of daylight and view connect anything that connects occupants to the you know to the natural world um but it's interesting that you know ensuring that there's some quantity of of you know decent view and we'll come back to to view a little bit later but uh it's interesting that glare becomes more tolerable when there's when there's view associated with it that's uh that that i did not know um, the glare index, I'm going to dive a little bit on that one. Um, it, how much is, it, of a role does contrast play uh, as opposed to absolute brightness? Um, so that's, a, that's another really good question. So if you're looking at a small source, so let's say like a, an a electric lighting, electric light, for example, that small source. So if you look at the contrast between that, so you take the brightness of the glare source, if the electric light is causing glare itself, then obviously the contrast will be very important because the glare source is small. So then the background will be much darker because it's less affected by the source itself. And that's obviously reflected in a, in a lot of glare index formats, such as like the unified glare rating, for example. You know, that takes a contrast term and obviously that's how we measure glare for small electric lights. But if the source is much bigger, so if we look at the daylight window, then obviously the contrast effects is less important because the source is much larger. It affects the background illumination. So obviously the contrast term plays a less important role. And what we have now is like formula, like such as the daylight glare probability, which is used for daylight windows which looks at, for example, a saturation effects, like the overall brightness effects in 
Carson's field of view, which it uses the vertical illuminance in lieu of the contrast term because it's much easier for people to measure that because it's a small point measurement on site that you could use, for example, or you know, via simulation, it's actually much easier to actually use that vertical illuminance term instead. So yeah, so at the at the core of this, it just really depends on the size of the source. So it's small or it's large, then you know if it's contrast or if it's not contrast. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. That is, that's good. Let's talk a little bit about the location of, of the uh, illumination source. Uh, I, there was a quote in one of your papers, which was, a, I believe, a quote that you took from, from uh, was it I, I, Iwata and Takura, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it says the source, let's see, a source of illumination placed above the fixation point triggered a lower level of visual discomfort than the same source position below the line of sight. Uh, can you explain that and maybe uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on the implications of that? Yeah, sure, of course. So if a glare source is sort of located above like a fixation point, or, you know, put simply, it's basically what the person is currently looking at. Uh, this actually will cause more visual discomfort than if it's located, sorry, if it's located below, it will cause more visual discomfort than if the source was located above it. So in other words, if I'm looking at the computer screen right now, and it's a glare source below the screen, that would be perceived as being more uncomfortable than a source of a comparable brightness and size that's located above the same screen. Uh, the reasons why this happens, I don't know if it's entirely clear. I haven't managed to find a particular reason that pinpoints exactly why this occurs. But if I had to make an assertion, it would probably be due to our experiences and expectations of for where, for what glare is and usually where it occurs. So for example, glare typically occurs in a daylit sky or ceiling lights, which would usually appear in the upper part of the visual field. And obviously that's where we're usually expecting the glare source to be. Uh, the implications to, to you know, how this informs daylight practice, I mean, probably like if we look at like how we design desk surfaces, I mean, that's probably one idea, I guess, that you know, we could ensure that those surfaces, particularly if they're near a window, are not too reflective, so it doesn't bother people on a more regular basis. So right. that could be one application. I, I think designers could potentially figure out, you know, other circumstances where this could be a potential problem. Right. Well, there's one that comes to mind, and there's a reason I asked the question. It, a very common use of, of engineered light diffusers to bring light into a space is to have you know, the vision yeah. glass at, at you know, uh, you know, that sort of three feet to six feet kind of or seven feet kind of range. And then above that in like a, a transom type position, you would have is that is where you'd put the engineered light diffuser. Um, part of that is to get that light bouncing off the ceiling so that it remains in the visible light spectrum and pushes in a little bit deeper. But now I'm you know, when I read that quote, I thought the position of of the the uh, light diffuser up high if you did have like direct sunlight that was causing glare you you could pull the blinds on the vision glass temporarily and leave the uh leave the light up top and and you you wouldn't experience the discomfort as significantly if it was it was if it was above your your line of sight is that logical thinking or yeah i mean it could be one particular application where you know this type of scenario occurs, and obviously if we look at the scientific evidence, you know, quantify how likely is that going to bother people. We could look at it from obviously that that spectrum, and obviously to say like you know is this going to be a problem? 
make informed decisions based on current research. I think that's a yeah, that's sound reasoning. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. The there's a correlation that you've discovered between fatigue and and glare response also between um hunger and glare response um are are, are, are there I, i'll ask two questions the first one being it, 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 you know was that a surprise and secondly are there practical implications to, to those two findings so so this was the research that I did for my PhD. So, um, you know, back then we were sort of just like, uh, I guess, measuring a lot of things. And obviously it was quite exciting time to do research because you were kind of new to it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the, the results itself were probably not that surprising because, you know, if we look at, if we kind of define what discomfort is, just in a very broad context, it's very subjective. So basically it's like whatever you feel right now, uh, you know, and, you know, when we try to measure that, you know, it's very subjective, which means also like it will vary from person to person. So like if you're more uncomfortable with something and you introduce something else that will start to bother you even more, like an irritant, like for example, hunger or you're tired, you're more likely to feel more uncomfortable than somebody else who's not hungry or they're they're more content, right? right? So so I think on on you know on that kind of from that perspective, yeah, I think the results are not necessarily that surprising. But you know, informing this into architectural design, you know, if I, I if I've been asked this question a few times, I think you know, if we if I was like to if I try to propose very informed practical implications for these particular findings, I think it'd be quite difficult, you know, at least not in the same manner conventional standards convey across language design criteria. Um, but what I think that these results start to do is that they sort of emphasize to researchers and architects, you know, who we really are designing for, which are, which are people, you know, people are very complex, they have a lot of needs, um, you know, and it, it's very difficult to bridge all those gaps. But, you know, having said that as well, uh, I think there is an opportunity at least to consider other types of ways we can account for those, all those differences between people, like the individual differences that occur between different people, and their needs and expectations. And I think something that I think may already start to have been done, or, or at least I've been seeing it in other areas, is this idea of personalized controls or you know, dynamic controls, which can better meet people's needs because everybody's different. There's no way of standardizing everybody. So if we're able to meet people's needs via things that they can control within the environment, you know, locally or within the room itself, in some way, then I think that's a better way of handling these problems rather than the conventional methods of just creating one value that defines everybody right. in an entire building or an entire country or, or you know, across the entire world. So I think that's probably the best way to go about tackling this particular issue. So there was something else in the, in that uh, in that research um, that I found very surprising, and that was that our, our tolerance for glare increases as the day progresses. Um, did that surprise you? Why do you think it's happening? And what are the implications of, of that finding? Yeah, so that's um, so that was the main question that was sort of Kate that came from my research uh, for my PhD. Um, and the motivation behind it was that we're well aware that light has a very profound influence on people. So it regulates a lot of you know, physiological processes that vary on a 24-hour cycle. And this is basically what we refer to as you know, circadian rhythms. You know, and these, these rhythms also extend throughout the time of year. So like, you know, uh, circadian rhythms are like 
you know, seasonal affective disorder, stuff like that come from this. So, so we know about these temporal effects. They're very well established within lighting. Um, what we didn't know at the time, and I thought there were strong reasons to sort of connect the dots between all these points was, you know, whether or not this sort of circadian-based effect also influence how we perceive the light. So you know, we don't perceive glare exactly the same way throughout the entire day. And, and you know, when we ran these tests, we did the experiments, what we ended up finding is that people tended to tolerate more glare as the day progressed. And there was some evidence later on. So I, I remember speaking to some researchers in UC Berkeley later on, and they actually said there was a physiological sort of physical sort of explanation behind this. And it was sort of related to how the retina in the eye sheds sort of outer layers and it's more sensitive in the morning so people are more sensitive to glare in the morning and then as okay. the day progress it becomes less sensitive and that's why the tolerance may increase um so it's kind of nice to have that explanation later on because you know as a background i'm more of an engineer so i'm not going to go that far deep into the human physiology behind it um but obviously running these experiments and looking at it from a more practical standpoint how we design for glare in buildings I think it was nice to know that, you know, like conventional metrics, you know, basically don't take this into account. But, you know, we sort of need to bear in mind that, you know, as they progress, people perceive like differently. So it's not going to be the same for the entire time of day. So would that would that have implications on, say, the amount of glazing you put on the east elevation versus the west elevation or any other sort of design implications? Yeah, it, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, because obviously that's where the glare will be experienced the most, for example, in the morning on the east, yeah, on the west, for example. So, I mean, it'd be difficult to sort of uh, assign people into specific uh, places based on, you know, how we characterize their, their, you know, their tolerance to glare. Sure. Um, but obviously that could that could be one way around it, particularly if that person's very prone, like photo, uh, they're very sensitive to glare, you know, photophobic people as a classified by. Um, you know, if they're very sensitive to glare and they were shutting the blinds and obviously you want to cure like, the energy savings, for example, you know, these things could matter. And, you know, so we could systematically or strategically assign people in desks based on the time of day, you know, to avoid glare. Obviously, there's probably some design uh, overlay onto this that <laughs> needs to be considered. But, you know, yeah. once you apply these findings and obviously reap the benefits from them, that could be one way of going about doing it. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Um, let's see what else do I want to talk about. Um, the, the glare index itself. Could you speak to the the calculation of the glare index in, in more general terms so that you, so, you know, practicing architects, engineers, uh, even building owners uh, would be able to basically understand it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so a glare index is essentially basically what it is, is a tool and it's used to help prevent the occurrence of glaring buildings. Um, there's also outdoor glare metrics, which are slightly different, but essentially they do exactly the same thing, but for, for things like such as street lighting and road lighting. But if we look at just indoor inside buildings, those glare indexes, uh, basically what they're defined by are four you know, uh, basic measurement terms. Um, so, for example, the first one being like the brightness of the source or the luminance of the source, uh, the brightness of the background, so the surrounding brightness of outside of the source, mm -hmm. uh, the size of the glare source itself, and then the fourth term is its position within the field of, the field of view. 
And typically what you would find in these glare indexes is that the weighting and arrangements of these four terms are slightly different as to how they were sort of like constructed. They tend to come to a slightly different answer depending on the experiments that they were done. But you often find that they're embedded in most of these equations. Um, so you can find them and you know, these weightings and arrangements are, are, you know, they're derived from scientific literature uh, or lighting standards, and you, you can you can find them in there. And linked to every model, what you'll find is a semantic scale. And what this does is sort of describes the, either the probability or the magnitude of visual discomfort that the occupant will likely experience uh, from the lighting conditions that are being measured by the designer or the architect. Uh, so when you calculate the glare index, you can then cross-reference, you know, the, the glare index value that's calculated to these like semantic descriptors. And, you know, you would then get a re relatively easy interpretation, or I just I should say really easy interpretation of what that situation should be. So it's, it would say, for example, it's uncomfortable. And in that circumstance, they can, you know, rethink the design proposal that they have to, you know, try and minimize that glare and obviously recalculate that glare formula again to see mm -hmm. whether it's lower than that uncomfortable threshold, like an acceptable level. And obviously that would be then reasons, evidence-based, and a proof that, you know, that lighting design is probably not going to cause glare during its operation. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to change the subject entirely right now. We're going to, we're going to talk about view. Um, you, you were a co-author in a paper with uh, Lisa Heshong and, and, and Stephen Selkowitz and, you know, some of the, uh, you know, uh, the heavyweights <laughs> the, 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 in that world, which uh, I, I'm sure was was wonderful to participate in. Um, it, it took me down a, a, a really interesting rabbit hole. I didn't even know that this sort of research was taking place. Um, but the, the paper talked about sort of quantifying, qualifying view in three categories, um, view access, um, view uh, view clarity and uh, view content. Um, so would, would you mind speaking to each of those three, uh, you know, sort of parameters def that define view? Yeah, certainly. So a few years ago, we, we, we asked this question, you know, what is view quality and how do building designers design for it? And generally what we found uh, when we asked this question was that there was actually a lot of valuable resources available you know from all parts of the world which were trying to design for view but just not all of it so when we began to collect this information and you know consolidate it into what we have now is a comprehensive design framework which then became the, the technical report um we actually began to realize that this information tends to fall, tends to fall into like one of three categories which is the you know, view access, you know, how much people can see, uh, how much of the view people can see. Uh, the view content, so basically is what, what they can see in the view. And the third one is, you know, view clarity. So how clearly can the view be seen? And, you know, all three of these things are very important to ensure a good view quality uh, so that you can't just design for just one. So you could have very good view content, you know, a very good view of like, you know, a, a national monument with a clear sky, you know, a lake, uh, lots of nature, mm -hmm. uh, good view access, so you're sat very close to a very large window opening. But, you know, if this thing is obstructed by shades, you know, for a predominant period of time because it has very poor visual privacy or, you know, a lot of glare, then, you know, that 
people aren't going to stick with the, with the view. So in the end, you know, the overall view quality score will be low. And basically, that's what we try to do. So we were just trying to connect the dots here and create something that designers could, you know, easily use to define a, a window view quality, just with free, simple, you know, rudiment terms, it's like the content that you access and the clarity. What's the next step in that research? That's a, so that's a very good question. So if we look at view content and view access, in terms of the scientific literature and the standards, I think that we're at a relatively good point where we can say that we know enough about them to know how to design for them within a view. So for example, a lot of like, you know, green building certification standards, such as like the WELL, the LEED, BRIAM, they do a very good job in terms of defining what is good view access. It's very easy for architects and designers to design for that. Content-wise, we have some standards which kind of tell people what you need to have in the view so, so that it's good and it's appreciated by the occupants. So like, for example, water, nature, the sky, landscape, and a ground layer, all these things together, you know, they make a relatively good view. Um, but for view clarity, there's actually not a lot of literature, research, or even standards available that kind of quantify this very well. And it's sort of been the area that has been receiving a little bit more attention, particularly after we we proposed this you know, view quality metric index. Um, so that's what we're trying to do now, is, is trying to better understand you know, what constitutes good view clarity and how can designers design for it in, in a building. And one of the biggest problems and challenges is obviously that the view clarity is actually dependent on the view content. So for example, like you could have very poor view content, but then the clarity won't matter. Or you can have a very particular type of view content, such as a very distant skyline, but you place a horizontal mullion bar right across it, which doesn't necessarily impact that much on how much you can see outside, but it completely destroys the view content. So obviously there's nuanced things we need to account for this, which is not as straightforward, but obviously this is what we're, this is the next steps that we're trying to take. So this is the next steps in terms of research that we're trying to tackle. What about some of the newer technologies? Well, I guess they're not that new, but things like, say, electrochromics or building integrated photovoltaics. Is there any sort of research on, on how that impacts view clarity? So we're doing that right now. <laughs> so it's, uh, okay. Uh, so the study results should be coming out relatively soon. We're doing that with artificial lighting as well. We're setting up some studies that do that also in Singapore, which is a very good candidate location to do it because... You know, Singapore has a lot of daylight abundance for the entire year. So looking at these technologies is, 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 is very beneficial to see how it impacts view clarity. How mm -hmm. we're going to go about doing that is quite interesting because it's not just, for example, how well I can see particular objects outside that quantifies view clarity. It's actually, for example, our vision is very much more complex. So it's seeing features in achromatic vision, so black and white and gray and you know, all shades in between but also as well through color, which is way more important for systems like you know, chromatic glazing, which also tint uh, the window, which obviously then changes the color. So it distorts things. So like, can we see sky very well if the tint color is blue? Because obviously it's the same color. So obviously this is, the, this is where we're sort of going in this direction is looking at you know, how does it affect view clarity overall? And obviously what parts of view clarity to human vision are being affected? And that's obviously where we're heading. Oh, that's fantastic. Will, will you speak to me again? Is that is that research progressive? Because yeah. I'd love to talk oh, about oh, that. Of course. Okay. Of course. It's very exciting. We're excited to share this with other people as well to, to see how this could be potentially applied by them. Obviously, 
what we intend and what is sometimes being used for is not always the same thing. So it's obviously interesting to speak to industrial people like yourself to make sure that these things are being used, you know, the way we should intend it. But what else we also need to do as well, because we don't necessarily cover everything that we know is important, although we would want to, but yeah, these talks are very important, obviously. Absolutely. So, you know, our, the series that this is part of, we, we call it Tech Tips for Architects. Um, so let's step back to the big picture again. Uh, if you could give me two or three pieces of advice based on your research, uh, if, practical advice for, for the architects, um, what, what would you say are some of the most important aspects of your research uh, and, and, and how it impacts uh, an architect's uh, daily life? Uh, so, if I had to kind of just select specific things that I've done, I would guess I'd probably select things that I felt had the largest potential to bring everyday changes to people's lives. Um, so for example, like if I circle back to the stuff that I did on window view quality, uh, we did a study uh, two or three years ago now, which looked at, for example, the design criteria that supports view content within the European building standard air lighting. So I think it was the EN170. Seven or something like that. And um, you know, basically it has this criterion in there, which basically states to a designer that a distant content view is more beneficial for people. And generally speaking, what we did is we tested that criteria on design criteria and actually supports that. So generally speaking, if you have content and it's pushed further away from the view, yeah, it, it, it's more appreciated by people. But it doesn't apply to everything people see. So actually, it, because the criteria makes no distinction between you know, if this is a building, you know, or this is a really nice, you know, nature or monument, for example, or, or blue space, for example, do people really want it to be seen very far away? You know, so like, is this thing very generalizable? And I think because the criterion is relatively new, so I think it was only uh, introduced in the 2018 version of the standard. It wasn't present yeah. in the one before. Uh, obviously, there are things in there which haven't been fully kind of uh, fully systematically tested. So obviously, as a general criterion, it works. But obviously, thinking more deeply about this, we came to realize that, for example, if you have a very nice view of nature and it's very close to the window, obviously, that's a very good window view. But obviously, if you calculate the quality of that using the standard, it would say that it's a very low quality view. So obviously, as a designer and a researcher, obviously, they, these things are very important to consider. So I feel like there's some interpretation needed. And obviously, on our part as researchers, is to try to inform those standards. Because I think as a designer, they will look at that view and this is a good view. So, but the standard doesn't agree. So obviously, this is where we're trying to, you know, we're trying to push things forward. Um, I think another study, which I think is... Uh, a little bit different, a different topic, and something that I've done in Singapore, which I, which I, uh, try to look at is this idea of a, uh, you know, looking at ceiling fans and recessed lighting. So this was a, another interesting study we did a couple of years ago, and we showed that, you know, ceiling fans and recessed lighting, when you put them together, so ceiling fans are very good at saving a lot of energy, a lot of cooling energy, particularly in hotter climates. Uh, but with recessed lighting, it causes chaos. There's this flickering, there's strobing, and yeah. You know, I also, again, I look back at the standards and a lot of these standards were saying, just, you know, just move them apart, you know, and that's the problem solved. And it actually doesn't solve much because, you know, the human vision is, is very complex because of visual parallax effects, the angle at which you see things, you can't actually get rid of uh, flickering uh, within a building if you have recessed lighting and these ceiling fans. And 
you know, what we found is not only does it cause visual discomfort, it actually starts to you know, impact on mental health, you know, mental performance and other parts of, you know, how we perceive the visual environment. Uh, so uh, I think the lesson that we learned from here and sort of what I was trying to convey out is that, you know, even though we have these technologies that save a lot of energy and are designed to save a lot of energy, it actually causes other problems in the building, which you don't really want to do. So in this case, it was the flickering and you know, I think that sent out quite a powerful message because obviously you know, we shouldn't we just be integrating these things and just saying from a thermal perspective, everything's fine. But obviously, if you look at it from a daylight a designer's perspective, it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare because, you know, there's people complaining about flickering or they didn't necessarily perceive the flickering. They just get a headache, but they don't even know what's causing it. So obviously, you know, looking at these things at a broader perspective, I've always found, you know, you know, wanting to communicate this to architects and obviously see obviously what they think, but obviously if they haven't been thinking about these things, it's nice to have this dialogue and conversation with them. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I don't have any more questions. Actually, sorry, wait, I do have one more. I, I wanted to ask you how you uh, heard of advanced glazings, how you came to even know we exist in the first place. Yeah, yeah, so that's a, a great question. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I often... Okay post a lot of things uh, on, on lighting. I share a lot of things. I post a lot of my research on it. I post a lot of things that people do. And usually I use a lot of hashtags. So I also hashtag like lighting design, lighting, daylighting, daylighting, daylighting. Okay. <laughs> anything along those lines. And um, yeah, one, and also as well, I search through the other people's hashtags, which they put on there. And uh, I, yeah, one day I just came across, because I was scrolling back and I think this post came out maybe half a year ago. And it was actually a very interesting post of uh, Ice Rink, uh, yes. which was showcasing daylight design. I don't know where the Ice Rink was exactly. I think it was like somewhere in Nova Scotia or something. And uh, yes. it's quite interesting because, uh, you know, I grew up playing hockey, uh, so ice hockey. Oh, and, really? Uh, okay. So it sort of combined my love of two things, you know, lighting and ice hockey. So I watched yeah, yeah. Uh, NHL. And it's great for me in single because the time difference means I can watch it, you know, at a reasonable time hour here. Whereas when I was in the UK, I couldn't. But um, but yeah, anyway, so combined those two things that I really love and I was like, oh, this is interesting because I've never seen, I, I've seen a few things, I've never seen any large scale projects and, and this one was quite nice because, you know, a lot of the, the ice rings I've been in, you know, predominantly artificially lit because obviously in a sports arena, you don't want daylight clear appearing, yeah. it's, it's yeah. difficult, you know, and obviously as well, like the heating, heat gains, stuff like that. but yeah. you know, this was a nice design, it looked very well daylit and it, I think in the post it said that there's no electric lighting on or something like that at the time yeah. so yeah um yeah it was quite fascinating so I, I i grew an interest there and obviously i clicked on the link to the company and just started scrolling through what else was happening and so it just went from there so uh yeah i think social media has a very powerful way of connecting us all yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, the, the name of the rink is Port Hawkesbury Arena. Uh, I'm in Nova Scotia. It's about uh, you know ninety kilometers from where uh, where I'm sitting right now. Oh well, so, okay. Yeah, I've been there many times. It's a beautiful uh, it, it's a beautiful feeling uh, to walk into that uh, that facility. Uh, it's it's amazing. I, I've been in a few yeah. ice rinks here in Singapore. And it, it doesn't feel quite right because it's so hot here. Right, and then there's an ice rink, so it's sort of it's it's. I mean, it's it's, it's great because I get to stay yeah. here and everything, but like uh, it it it's kind of, it's it's kind of strange to, <laughs> to be in such a hot place and there's ice rinks around. <laughs>